so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. He's oh. good. He's good. He's from Strong Stock. Oh, man, it would just be horrible. He's named Grant. I mean, I it's, it's just shy of being he's like Granite. Ulysses. He's like Ulysses. I mean, he's, Ulysses. Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> you want to try that again? Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is my fun, fabulous, fearless, sometimes fickle co-host, Brent Leatherwood. Uh, It's always good to be in studio with you, my unflinching, friendly (laughs) frenemy. Frenemy. That is not nice. I was proud of my alliterations. I've been listening to some SBC pastors and learning from them. Well, that's good. And given that that was the fourth take of that, that that's, yeah. it should be. I'm glad you you uh, exposed that truth yeah. because it is true. Well, let's get to talking about what's been happening lately. And we're going to start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First up, we have a piece by Jill Wagner, and it's titled The Critical Pro-Life Work of Pregnancy Resource Centers, an interview with Laura Mezik of Portico in Tennessee. Now, you hear us talk about pregnancy resource centers a lot, but really, pregnancy resource centers are full of heroes, and there is no doubt about that. They are on the front lines of work that is chock full of spiritual warfare, where the enemy is going after the lives of preborn babies and going after the hearts of moms and dads. And so we were privileged, Jill was privileged to get to talk to Laura Mezik, uh, who leads Portico. And this uh, Pregnancy Resource Center has actually received a Psalm 139 Project ultrasound machine. Laura talks about how the center has benefited from this ultrasound machine. She talks about the work that they have seen God do in their midst. She talks about the importance of the work that they do and how other Christians can join in on this mission to proclaim the dignity of every single life. This uh, The center here is a part of this portico. They've actually received two Psalm 139 machines, one through our very unique partnership with the state of Tennessee and one that's completely from our our Psalm 139 supporters out there. And we did this dedication ceremony this week, and we did it with Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee. And while we were there, Laura Mesnick, who was interviewed by Jill for this piece, she shared with us just an incredible story that is just a, a wonderful reminder of why we do this. Our machines were used recently for a mother, an expectant mother who came in to have a picture taken of her her child so that she could see it. And she shared that over the course of the last several weeks, she has been told by the father of the child, by parents, by other relatives, 
that she just needs to get an abortion and just go get it done. As a matter of fact, uh, they had gone so far uh, as to schedule an appointment. And she just thought, you know, before that day comes, let me just go to this particular center and see what they'll show me. And walked in and had the picture taken. And child is up there on the ultrasound screen. And they, at the at this center, they celebrated the fact that there is a life growing within her. And she was just reduced to tears. And she said, you're the first person to talk about this baby that way. And that's just, that's, I mean, this is happening on a daily basis at these pregnancy resource centers that, that we partner with, where they are just helping these mothers understand the truth about the life that is growing within them. And that's the thing. I, there's this, uh, this narrative out there that Planned Parenthood and other members of the predatory abortion industry have put out there that, in fact, abortion empowers women. But that industry, all they're doing is lying to these women. That's not empowerment. Empowerment is actually saying, you have a child now. And that child deserves a chance at life. And here's all the reasons you should choose life. And here's all the ways we're going to wrap around you to help support you in that decision. That's actually empowerment. And that's not what culture wants to hear right now. But I'm so thankful uh, that folks at, at this particular one uh, here in Middle Tennessee at Portico and other uh, nurses and, and doctors and medical staff and, and support staff at, at these centers are out there on a daily basis combating these lies and helping to truly empower mothers. That is a good word, Brent, and great information. It's neat to hear about the two ultrasound machines. I'm glad you mentioned that. Two other things stand out to me thinking about this. You know, somebody might be listening to this podcast and thinking that they want to be involved in pregnancy resource centers and pro-life ministry and feel a tug at their heart, but they're not sure what they're going to do. And Laura's story is neat because she was a 25-year-old stay-at-home first-time mom when God began to lay this issue on her heart. And it's because she heard about late-term abortions that were happening in California and babies were discovered in dumpsters. And it just tore at her. And from then on, she really was committed to the pro-life movement and the Lord has used her in amazing ways. The second thing is how after Roe versus Wade, you know, the Lord would have it that the the rise of the ultrasound machine would happen and we'd be able to get a window into the womb and see that there actually is a real life in there. And I just think it's amazing because it has been, ultrasound machines have been so key and so critical in the midst of this work and in advocating for babies. So we are thankful for this ministry and, and pregnancy resource centers all over the world. And we encourage you to pray for them because they truly are on the front lines. The next article is by Jason Thacker, and it is an explainer about what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. You've probably seen this filling up your news feeds, but tensions have been heating up. I'm not even going to try an attempt to explain this article because it is full of all kinds of interesting facts about the history of Russia and Ukraine. But what should be said about this is that we Christians should care about this. We should think about this. We should pray about this because this will have ramifications, not only for uh, the people who are living in the Ukraine who are potentially going to be invaded and ministry that's happening there, Christians who are there, but also for us in the United States and for uh, what our involvement could potentially be. So Brent, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this? 
Well, I just, there's a narrative out there in culture right now from elements of the political right that are almost suggesting that we should either be indifferent about this Russian aggression towards Ukraine, or honestly, uh, there's been some that have suggested maybe we need to be siding with Russia, which is just crazy. We need to stand up for the dignity of everyone uh, when it is imperiled. And, and certainly, when a nation like Russia has designs on taking over a sovereign neighbor like uh, Ukraine, uh, that should be something that should cause us to be deeply concerned. Because ultimately, if this were to play out in the worst possible scenario, Russia forcefully uh, overtaking uh, Ukraine, I mean, innocent lives will inevitably be lost. And innocent lives will inevitably bear the brunt of the challenges associated with that sort of Russian occupation. Churches will be affected. Missionaries will be affected. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a prominent Christian leader here recently about how uh, he is counseling missionaries on the ground and pastors of churches on the ground about, is now the time to abandon my church, my congregation, my the field where I'm working. I, I don't know if it is or not. And these are hard, hard questions because they feel God has called them to this particular community or this particular area to serve. And so Christians, absolutely, we should be the ones that are caring about this and watching this very closely. And look, our, our elected officials in Washington, they have every right to be debating uh, the extent to which we either uh, get involved or or help Ukraine or our, our NATO allies, absolutely. Uh, like that's a part of, of good policymaking. But we, we really shouldn't, as uh, Americans who, who care about freedom across the globe, uh, we, we shouldn't countenance this sort of, well, we just need to look the other way. Uh, this is in Russia's backyards. I, I mean, look, if, if, <laughs> if 2020 and the challenges brought forth by the pandemic have shown us, we live in an increasingly uh, globalized society where issues in one part of the world no longer just stay in that particular region. Uh, they go global very quickly. And there is a, a tinderbox of a situation uh, unfolding in Eastern Europe right now where uh, things could quickly get out of hand if Russia is, is not – if a signal is not sent to Russia and to its president, Vladimir Putin – that these sorts of aggressions uh, are not something that should happen in our modern world. So uh, this is definitely something that, that we will be continuing to pay attention to at the RLC, but more broadly, uh, all of us really should be. Well, on one note of encouragement to listeners, in a social media age, in, in such a connected age, not just social media, but TV, it can be so overwhelming because we're confronted with so many needs and so many issues and events and things that we should be caring about that are inundating us. And we are not God. We're not sovereign. We're not all-knowing. And so based on your season of life or whatever it might be, you're going to be able to know more about certain situations than you are others or be involved in certain ministries than you are others. And so that's why at the ERLC, we try to keep track of some of these things for you so that we can help you in the midst of your busy life uh, think wisely and biblically about these issues. And you don't have to feel lost in the midst of all the talk and the hubbub. And then finally, we have an article by Alex Ward, and it's titled, Why Should Christians Care About the Environment, Creation Care and Confidence in God? 
And I just want to say at the outset, this can often be a controversial issue. It's To me, it's not a liberal versus conservative issue. It's just something that the Lord talks about clearly in Genesis 1 when he gives man and woman dominion over the earth. We are his, those are in Christ are his vice regents. We help care for and steward the earth well. And we do it by faith, knowing that, you know what, the world and everything around it is affected by the fall. So things are not going to turn out perfectly. But in the end, God is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And we're working toward that day. And we work um, by faith toward that day. So we're just trying to be good stewards of what the Lord has entrusted us with. And in turn, to glorify Him. That's really what this is about. It's not about idolizing the world or the earth or anything else. It's about taking what God has entrusted to us and following through with His um, commandment to steward it well. Man, vice regents. Uh, I bet nobody uh, tuning into the old ERLC pod today was thinking they were going to get that word. I mean, mercy, we're we're going to grad school here oh, at the ERLC yeah. podcast. I remembered one thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you remember one thing. You, that's right. Uh, you know, Alex is uh, just one of our best thinkers, and I, I appreciate that uh, he put this down. And to your point, Lindsay, I would say if people are getting hung up on this issue, it is because they are placing their politics above their gospel. Because what we are doing is we are thinking through an issue that the Bible is very clear on, uh, and yet we're we're trying to put it into the dichotomy of uh, whether I am a conservative or a liberal, and that's how I should think about. And what we're trying to say is no, God has spoken about this, and and therefore uh, it requires us to be attentive to it. And so that's how best to think about it. Like you need to rightly order your process of engagement with these things and start from a biblical basis and and not a political basis. And, you know, that applies to not just obviously issues like the environment, but uh, so many other issues where the gospel is is speaking to and helping to inform the ways uh, that we engage in this world. Yeah, that's so true, Brent. And so I was thankful for this article by Alex. It's just balanced and carefully thought through and well-written. And so I hope that you will find it beneficial and help you think through this issue. And again, this is just a, a little taste of what we have going on on our site I would encourage you to go check out the other articles that we have had uh, this week and that we featured. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section, Brent, what has been happening in our world this week? Well, the political world was thrown a curveball this week as Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the highest court in the land. So our first story this week comes to us from the Associated Press. Liberal Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring giving President Joe Biden an opening he has pledged to fill by naming the first black woman to the high court. Breyer, 83, has been a justice since 1994, appointed by President Bill Clinton. Along with the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Breyer opted not to step down the last time the Democrats controlled the White House and the Senate during Barack Obama's presidency. Ginsburg died in September of 2020, and then-President Donald Trump filled the vacancy with a conservative justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Breyer's departure, expected over the summer, won't change the 6-3 to three conservative advantage on the court because his replacement will be nominated by Biden and almost certainly confirmed by a Senate where Democrats have the slimmest of majorities. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Biden's nominee, quote, will receive a prompt hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and will be considered and confirmed by the full U.S. Senate with all deliberate speed. 
Uh, I've married this with another piece that comes to us from Politico that helps to provide just a slightly wider view on the context of this retirement. From the story, as the White House considers candidates to replace the retiring justice, they'll need a judge who is guaranteed to garner support from every member of the Democratic caucus. That raises the stakes for the confirmation battle, but also provides some comfort for Democrats, as long as they stay unified. Republicans can't stop Breyer's successor from being confirmed as Republicans scrapped the 60-vote threshold on high court nominees in 2017. It will be President Biden's first opportunity to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. Biden promised that he would nominate a black woman should an opening on the court arise. But it could take weeks before the White House names a final candidate. And actually, as we have uh, gone on the air here, President Biden has come out and said he intends to nominate someone by the end of February. So, and traditionally, uh, Supreme Court nominations uh, and confirmations can take some time. Uh, Justice Barrett's confirmation was probably the speediest, at least in recent memory, as it took about 30 days for her to be nominated and confirmed. Uh, so it is possible that Democrats will try to move along a similar time frame, although it's not expected that the individual that ultimately is selected will serve on the court until the end of this term, which would be in the, the middle of the summer. Brent, this brings back memories of when Antony Scalia died suddenly and the just kind of the chaos of that and and scrambling and and just what it looks like at the ERLC during a, a Supreme Court nomination. One of our colleagues shared this funny tweet that you can probably explain better because you are just a political expert. But it says, a SCOTUS confirmation battle during a midterm fight, during a pandemic, during a possible European war, during a potential government shutdown, during key domestic legislative wrangling. Let's go. <laughs> and that's pretty much just what, since 2020, that's just what it's been like. During a, during a, during a, moving from one crazy thing to the next. Yeah, and, and this is pointing out that all these crazy things are happening on top of one another. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the pandemic is the wider context, the global context we all find ourselves in. Uh, but needless to say, if you're at the White House and you're looking at managing the response to COVID, uh, you now have a confirmation battle, all while things are uh, increasingly growing more and more ominous uh, by the, the day in Ukraine, then clearly there's a, there's a lot on the plate. And uh, politically, the context is uh, this is all happening in the run-up to the midterms, which will occur this November. And actually, that's part of, many have speculated, that that is part of the reason that, that Breyer uh, has announced his retirement, is uh, they, they want to accomplish putting on someone who is younger than him on the court, uh, who is from that same sort of uh, philosophical bent, right, who is liberal, before the midterms, because many expect that Democrats will lose control of the Senate because of these midterms. And so, therefore, they wouldn't be able to confirm someone who has the same judicial philosophy as as Justice Breyer. So that's uh, that's what that means. But that is funny. And when you step back and look at all these different things that we are just paying attention to in the news, it, it is a busy time. So does, uh, help me understand, does the Supreme Court justice, do they have to voluntarily, don't they have to voluntarily retire? They they can't be told 
by their, you know, I mean, certain party. Well, you correct? can be impeached. Uh, you can be removed by Congress, but that that is an incredibly high bar, and we haven't done that. So why wouldn't Justice Breyer just say, no, I don't want to retire if he's being pressured to? Well, so last week, uh, apparently, according to one NBC News report, uh, Justice Breyer actually had informed officials at the White House that he was intending to retire, but had not yet expressed that to President Biden. Uh, But then Pete Williams from NBC actually was the one that scooped everyone with the news and released it earlier this week that that Breyer was intending to retire. So he may have been preempted slightly, but it it does seem natural. I mean, he's 83 years old, oldest member of the Supreme Court currently uh, with his retirement. Clarence Thomas will become uh, the oldest at 74. So he was, you know, nearly ten years uh, older than the next oldest person on the court. So it, it would make sense for him to go ahead and retire. And given the political lay of the land, Democrats potentially losing control of the Senate, it, it, honestly, it kind of does make sense. And if you're the president and you're the White House, you want this appointment. Uh, Supreme Court appointments are a very strong part of a president's legacy, and uh, the the Biden administration is seeing this as an opportunity to put someone who was more liberal on the court. And um, so, yeah, I I would say more than likely this was going to happen. It, it just may have slightly happened a little earlier than he intended. Well, that's helpful. The other big story of the week is, as we've kind of talked about, and it has, it has been in recent weeks, are the developments in Ukraine. Uh, and they are not encouraging. The Wall Street Journal has this. Russia said that it didn't see much reason for optimism that the West would accept its demands over de-escalating the standoff over Ukraine and said Russian President Vladimir Putin would take his time in considering proposals delivered by the U.S. and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization a day earlier. The U.S. and the Washington-led Military Alliance had late Wednesday sent written responses to Moscow over its security demands that would redraw Europe's security architecture by barring former Soviet states from joining NATO and hosting U.S. military bases. The efforts to engage with Russia diplomatically come as Moscow masses forces around Ukraine, raising fears of an escalation in the long-running conflict. Russia seized Crimea from its neighbor in 2014, and Russian-backed forces occupy areas in Ukraine's industrial east, according to Western officials. So essentially what Russia is posturing uh, about is the fact that there are former Soviet bloc nations or uh, nations that were controlled by Russia that are now a part of NATO. And uh, there is a country like Ukraine that has expressed an interest in joining NATO, which again is a military alliance of of Western countries. And uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't like that. He thinks that that allows American forces, which are a part of NATO, to get a little too close to Russia for his liking. And so he is, in essence, building up troops on his western border, the one that borders Ukraine, to uh, send a signal that he wants this to stop. Uh, And in effect, he's implying that if for some reason his demands are met, then, then they may just take Ukraine by force. And so that's that's how we've gotten to where we are. It should be noted, and we put this in that explainer that our colleague Jason Thacker wrote about what is going on in this conflict. Uh, it should be noted that that Putin has designs on essentially reestablishing at least the physical geography of what once was the Soviet Union. And he sees that as a part of cementing his legacy long term. Yeah, it's definitely um, 
interesting to watch. And on that explainer toward the bottom, we'll be putting updates as they occur because it's a pretty fast-moving situation. Now to add a little levity in the conversation, I've already given you a hard time about this in the past. It wasn't appropriate earlier when we were talking about the explainer, but now it is. How you pronounce U-K-R-A-I-N-E. You say Ukraine. <laughs> and it's funny because we were talking about the well, president, President it? Grant. How do you, you know, say it? I say Ukraine. So you, my so you think the you think the emphasis is on the second ain, syllable? Yeah, not the U. Well, it's not on the ain. It has a it K. Is. I know, but it's not Ukraine. It's Ukraine. No, that's what you say. Oh. It's, <laughs> you're corrupting me. It's Ukraine. You don't even know, Ukraine. really. Yeah, you're you know. you're speaking as you East Tennessee. Think you're an ex- East Tennessee. Uh, expert. Well, I'm not an expert, but no, I just okay. know <laughs> it's not Ukraine. <laughs> um, so anyway, decided to give you a hard time. You're there. just trying to say that I put the emphasis on, on the, the wrong, wrong syllable. syllable. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Our next story comes to us from the New York Times, and it's about our. F- favorite story (laughs) that never goes away, COVID. Uh, It's saying that, uh, well, here's another word that you and I like to disagree on uh, how we pronounce it, because you like to call it Omicron. What do you call it? Omicron? No, it's not Omicron. Omicron. You pronounce it like somebody from Boston. (laughs) Omicron. Omicron. The New York Times reports uh, that it is loosening its grip, but the pandemic is not over. After a frenetic few weeks when the Omicron variant of the coronavirus seemed to infect everyone, including the vaccinated and boosted, the United States is finally seeing encouraging signs. So what's driving the optimism? The idea is that so many people are gaining immunity through vaccination or infection with Omicron that soon the coronavirus will be unable to find a foothold in our communities and will disappear from our lives. Well, by infecting so many people, Omicron undoubtedly brings us closer to the end of the pandemic, experts have said. The current surge in infections is falling back, and there is reason to hope that hospitalizations and deaths will soon follow. And instead, the coronavirus seems likely to become endemic, a permanent part of American lives, a milder illness like the flu that people must learn to live with and manage. But the future also depends on a wild card, new variants. Omicron surfaced only at the end of November, and most researchers believe other variants are coming because too little of the world is vaccinated. And I think a lot of us have talked about basically this, that this is this is going to just be something that we have to learn to live with. And it, it probably will become something like the flu where, you know, each new season – uh, we have the opportunity to to go out and and get a COVID shot, like a flu shot. Maybe maybe they will even marry those two together. I don't know. And there will be those of us who just decide, no, I I don't want to. And you know, we just have to play the odds. And if you're younger, the odds are really good. And if you're not, if you're older uh, or you're in an immunocompromised position, uh, th- those odds aren't aren't great. And that's that may just be the reality uh, that we live with. I mean, for example, this past season, I didn't get a flu shot because the studies were coming back and said that uh, it was, I want to say it was less than half effective at this particular season's strain of the flu. And I don't know, that that's probably an indictment on me. Maybe I, I should still have, have gone to get it. Uh, but may, maybe that's just going to kind of be the decision matrix we all have in the years to come. Right. Well, if I could insert the breaking news 
sound, you know, like do 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 that there's you talking about this, um, that there's a sub variant of Omicron that they are tracking. Okay. Did you hear about this? No. I saw this this morning on the news. I don't know much about it, but it's a, this news story, this YouTube clip from NBC News calls it a stealth version of Ooh. Omicron uh, discovered in California. Uh, and so they are tracking that. But it doesn't anyway, have a name. Is it like Omicron no, Plus or it, something? Or? It just says stealth version, and there's not an actual article about it oh, yet. Okay. Okay. So interesting, interesting. Well, and I should, you know, I should put as a postscript uh, to my flu comment or flu shot or comment. I have for the last several years gotten my flu shot, but for whatever reason, I think it was because I went and got boosted that I was like, you know what? If I'm going to beat that. I can, I, I can, can take any flu that's right. coming. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You know, I used to—this is just a side note, too, for some entertainment. For the longest time, I did not get the flu shot because this is like at the beginning. This is before fake news was even a thing. I was a victim of fake news. So I didn't get the flu shot because I saw this news story where this woman <laughs> apparently got the flu shot. And so she could—and you'll find out why I'm laughing in a minute because it's going to seem heartless. She could no longer walk— she could only run backwards. <laughs> and I believed it. <laughs> so I didn't want to get stuck uh, not being able to walk forward and just run backwards and whatever else might happen to me. And so I didn't get the flu shot for the longest time. But to be clear, this wasn't real. No, this okay. is fake news. She, okay. I think people discovered her walking normally. So anyway, that is how you too, my friend, can get taken by fake news. Oh, me. Wow. Although I would I would love to see you in a season where all you could do is run. <laughs> I were, uh, yeah, I remember that video uh, that, semi-clearly in my mind. Well, there so. you go. Okay, our final story of the week uh, takes us to the world of game shows because a very impressive winning streak for a current Jeopardy champion has been snapped. CNN reports this. It's game over for Jeopardy champ Amy Schneider, but she has more than 1.3 million reasons to be grateful for her impressive run. Schneider, an engineering manager from Oakland, California, closed out the show's second longest consecutive win streak Wednesday, ending a 40-game run. Roan Talsma, a librarian from Chicago, ended Schneider's time on the program. Schneider came in second during the game that aired Wednesday. With Schneider's exit, current host Ken Jennings keeps his record for most victories in Jeopardy! history with 74 wins in a row. That's incredible. I mean, both of these are incredible, 74 and 40. These are, gosh, I I just try and, you know, be competitive when I watch Jeopardy! let alone, you know, win that many times in a row. So now, all that said, there's kind of an elephant in the room uh, with this story. CNN is referring to Amy Schneider as a her, and, and uh, Amy is transgender, and I'm just curious, Lindsay, you know, as as a female, like, how does this land with you uh, that, you know, this is being called the, the, the record for women with Jeopardy? I mean, ultimately, we're talking about a game show, but it, it is kind of a cultural moment that I think offers a, a chance to reflect on just where we are. Right. You know, while it should be said from the outset that we have compassion on people who struggle in this way and feel like they don't match up with their biological sex and have gender dysphoria and all that, 
that is a hard struggle. The reality is, is that God has made us male and female, and that's for our good and for our flourishing. And really, women should be offended by this. Living in a world that is, you know, post third wave, I don't even know what wave we're on of the feminist movement uh, where so many strides were made for rights for women that we didn't have. And uh, we should be frustrated that these biological males are coming in and taking from women these this this championship. And we talked about the athlete from the swimmer from UPenn or was it Penn State? I can't remember. University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, well, she had some records in women's swimming, but it turns out she's actually, it's he, he he's a biological mm-hmm. male. And so these women are being robbed of their accomplishments they're, and they're being put up against a man who they cannot physically compete against just by the very way of our structure. And so it really turns what feminists have tried to do for years on their head and it just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And you wonder where it's going to stop and it's not really. And you wonder how this transgender revolution is going to turn on its head and undo the work of someone else, you know, down the road. So really women should be offended by this truly it, because it, it robs us of our accomplishments. Yeah, our, our culture right now is just so confused and, and this is just the latest example. I mean, this is 40 times in a row winning Jeopardy. That That is impressive. Like man, woman, it, it doesn't matter. That is just incredibly I- impressive. But just these these articles calling it, you know, a, a triumph for, for women, a record for women. It's like, well, but is it really? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's just, uh, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I would say this, Amy Schneider, congratulations. 40 times in a row. That is something to be proud of. And I've watched Jeopardy numerous times. Uh, over the years, and uh, it never ceases to amaze me just the 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 facts that people have stored in the back of their their minds. So congratulations on that. But I just I just don't know that we should be calling it a a record for women. That's yeah. that's where I'm kind of left with. No, honestly, it's not a triumph for women. It's a it's an impressive feat by a man, a biological male, and the the woman that came before. Amy Schneider is the one, is the true woman who holds right. the record right. for the most right. wins. I will say this on a lighter note. I was impressed that I immediately knew the answer to the final Jeopardy question that tripped up uh, Amy Schneider. Oh, which was? Do you, do, do you want to try it real quick? Uh, no, I would I would look a fool on okay, Jeopardy. Okay, well, you're going to try it real quick. So let's just take a quick second here and let's let's just see if you could do it, d- despite your apprehension to, uh, to participate here. So the final Jeopardy question was, this country— which in English is the only country to end in H, is also one of the most populous countries in the world. Lindsay, go. Mm. How did you know this? Your time is running out. It's got to be in Asia. Okay. Can I just give you the continent? No. I just okay. give you, I'm you giving have, you the you have, you have three seconds left. I don't know what it okay, is. Okay, survey says. Well, that's a different game show. <laughs> I, don't, I can't even think of a country that ends in H right now. Well, that's actually what happened with Amy Schneider. I mean, there was no answer. The, when the screen came up, there it was, was blank. There was no answer? Yep. What? What is it? Bangladesh. Oh, Bangladesh. Bangladesh. And it's so obvious. Well, I don't know that it's obvious. Bangladesh. I mean, it's not like it's some really small that's right. country. It's, that's right. It's obscure. one of the most populous right. in the world. Oh. So I knew it. I knew it immediately. I was like, man, that's. That's impressive. Yeah. 
So Feet for men everywhere, Brent, <laughs> but you knew that. <laughs> All right. Well, Lindsay, that is your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what do you have for us? So I was talking with someone at church the other day, and it lined up exactly with this uh, CT article that actually came out last week. I had missed it. But we were talking about, like, man, where, where are just some of the people at church right now? And we weren't saying it in a pejorative way or a, a mean-spirited way, but, like, there are just—we have kind of took stock. Like, there are several— uh, friends of ours, several couples that we know, uh, just several people from around church from pre-COVID that still just have not come back. And uh, I know personally several of those people, like I've, I've reached out to them and just like, hey, would everything okay? And like just haven't received any response back. And uh, Christianity Today has noticed this. And so they published a report based on some research that's been done to kind of try and answer, like, where where have some of those people that seem to be missing at church gone? And so this article says, according to data collected in April and May of 2020 by the Barna Group, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely at the beginning of COVID-19. So that's not surprising. Uh, what was surprising is that uh, the decline is seen in a couple different areas. Uh, Americans who are younger or older are more likely than those in the middle age groups to have experienced a drop in attendance. And also, according to the data, black Americans are more likely than others to have experienced a sharp decline. As a matter of fact, their numbers have gone from in 2019, 45% of black Americans attending a religious service regularly to by 2021, that number dropping to 30%. That's a huge drop of 15%. Other racial, ethnic demographics, the drop has been somewhere between 5 and 6%. And then it goes to this, which is why I think it's important that we need to keep encouraging people to come back when it's safe and when it's responsible to do so, uh, but to come back into the church community. It says, it is possible that some empty pews may be replaced by online worshipers, but there is no available data to support this. Moreover, a lack of in-person interaction could weaken the social bonds within churches as the pandemic prolongs. And as we know, religious service attendance is not only linked to having a better social support network, but also to several public health benefits, such as less depression, lower suicide rates, and less drug and alcohol overdoses. And it's just a good reminder, as we know that the other categories, these these deaths of despair are rising across society in many ways, it's because individuals that are affected by that, it's because they feel they have no support network. They have no one they can talk to. They, they have no uh, religious community to lean on. And, um, you know, Hebrews 10 tells us we, we need to be together as we worship our Lord. And, and so I think it is incumbent upon us uh, who have come back to church to even if it's not necessarily to pressure people to get back in right now, it's to continue engaging them and to say, your church still cares about you and your church still wants to be there for you so that when they do feel uh, it is safe, when they do feel that it's proper, that they can come on back to the church physically. Well, a couple of thoughts. Number one, good for you for reaching out to those people you haven't seen, because I know there are probably some people that have not received that who were plugged into their church prior to this Number two, it's 
Pastors aren't mentioned in this. I mean, I hope they're going to church because they're the pastor of the church, but it's got to be hard for them. Mm. Not just pastors, but the, the ministers, the directors, the whatever, uh, who are doing the work of ministry there in the church. That's got to be tough, not seeing people you know and love come back, and it's got to be discouraging. And I know I've not been faithful to pray for them, but we need to be praying for them and encouraging them. And lastly, I wish they would have covered the demographic of parents with little kids. I'd like to know how that breaks out. Like people with children, if they've seen them, I tried to scroll through the article and I don't think I saw it, but if they've seen a difference, like with older kids, they're coming back. With little kids, they're not. Because I'll tell you what, with little kids, getting a taste of being at home and not going through the rigmarole, you know, of going to church and rushing back home and just just all the chaos, you know? Although it was chaos at home to be able to pay attention to church, I can definitely understand. I don't justify people not coming back to church, but I, I understand the struggle in the flesh. Well, here you are, Lindsay, because I did read the piece. And so I found that exact part that you're talking about. It did mention them. I just didn't have it in my show, show notes, but here it is. Uh, Americans who are younger or older are more likely than those in their middle age groups to have experienced a drop in attendance. It is also more pronounced among married adults without children under the age of 18. Some 30% of married adults with young children attended religious services regularly in 2021, which is down 40% from 2019. Okay, still down 40%. I mean, that's a big drop. I'm sorry, down from 40, so it's a 10% drop. Oh, 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 I thought you said down 40%. Yes, okay. some 30% of married adults without young children attended religious services regularly in 2021, down from 40% in 29, so it's a 10% drop. Okay, interesting. Yes, well, oh, the Lord is just, just doing a work, a, a cleansing work, I don't know, purifying work, but this pandemic is doing all kinds of things to us, isn't it? It is. Well, I'm going to share a story that actually you shared first, but this is about an unknown space object. And the headline is, Unknown Space Object Beaming Out Radio Signals Every 18 Minutes Remains a Mystery. And scientists think it could be a fallen star or a, a dead star or something like that. But the picture that is shown is pretty amazing. And it brings up the conversation about aliens, Brent. Like, you know, what... What if there were aliens out there? Would you be, what if they were emitting signals to us? Would you just be thrown for a loop or what? Well, I mean, you know, I, I recall something that uh, Dr. Moore said, uh, which is uh, as Christians, we in fact are actually trying to tell the world that there are beings other than just us, namely angels and demons. And, and so I think in that sense, we, we kind of have a category for this and maybe other people don't. And, and I also, I reject this this notion that's out there that like, oh, if we discover intelligent life out there or, or any sort of life out there, you know, some germ is out there on Venus that somehow that that like collapses uh, our belief in, in God and, and Christianity. Like that's just utterly ridiculous. Wait, because there's a germ on Venus? Yeah. Huh. I mean, at this point, that's, that's basically <laughs> what is out there that that we've been able like that's what right. we're searching for you know and in, in the uh, melted ice of mars is there a jar i mean that's the thing and it's it's like okay but that that doesn't really that doesn't really affect uh my belief in christ and him crucified and no. and, and what he has done for my salvation and 
If there were aliens out there, though, I would be creeped out. Totally creeped out. Maybe I'd build a bunker. They're coming for us. Right. Well, be that as it may, would it would it just cause you to question your entire belief system? Well, no, it oh, wouldn't of do course that. Not. But no. it would still freak me out. Right. Well, so. I mean, but thankfully we have people like Will Smith uh, who will save us. Oh, Independence Day? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, well, you know. <laughs> Are aliens- we going to be able to use any of this at this <laughs> sure, point? Sure, why not? <laughs> Folks, we talk about anything and everything on this podcast. This is a true taste of what the ERLC lunchroom would indeed be like if we were all gathering together in the lunchroom, talking about various subjects. Um, And I think it is a good place to end. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.